Well, good morning again. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Libby Skillman, and I'm one of the children's pastors here. And um, I have really enjoyed, as we have been celebrating Advent together in two different ways as a church, one with reading John Piper's book, The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, has just been wonderful, and then also just doing this Advent um, ceremony itself each Sunday and reminding ourselves of what God has done. So we've already lit the candle of hope, the candle of joy, and the candle of peace. And so this morning, we're going to be lighting the candle of love. There. All right. So let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to read our passage together. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And you may be seated. So why can we have this peace? And why can we have this joy? And why can we have this hope? Well, as it stated in that passage, it's because of God's faithful love. And um, his love is amazing for us and just indescribable. We can't even imagine it. So I did a little bit of research and looked some things up about this passage. And a commentary by Matthew Henry states, none of our words or thoughts can do justice to the free, astonishing love of a holy God towards sinners. So the candle of love not only represents the birth of Christ, which is what we think about at Christmas, but it also represents that which Christ did for us in coming, in dying, in coming back to life, and then his return when he will um, bring us home. So um, God knows that we are incapable of fathoming this love. So he has an answer for that um, in a prayer. And this is from Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul prays, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love. So when we think about how wide God's love is, that refers to his love for all nations and for all ranks. God loves all. And he says, everyone will be around my throne, all nations, all tribes. When we talk about how long his love is, his love is everlasting. It's never ending. When we talk about how deep it is, that's such a 
just relief because God's love is so deep that it's just a reminder that when we are stuck in the depths of sin or misery, God can reach us even there, and we are never without his being able to reach us. And if you are not sure of this, read Psalms 18. It's just such a beautiful picture of God coming to rescue us. And then how high reminds us that it's the display of his love to the church and also that he will return and gather his people to himself. So um, that's just a wonderful thought that he will return and gather his people. And so after all those descriptive words, we still have problems understanding God's love because it's so deep. And so Paul prays more. He prays, I pray that you would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, surpasses our knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of Christ. And that can only come by just a um, revelation of the Holy Spirit. We cannot fathom any of God's love from, for us, except for the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So um, the love candle reminds us to pause, to ponder God's love displayed in Christ in his birth, death, resurrection, and his return. So let's pray now. Father God, I just um, thank you for the amazing love that you have for us, your faithful love. I um, thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his willingness and your willingness to send him and his emptying himself just to come to this earth as a baby to give of himself by dying on the cross, the power that brought him back to life and that he will eventually return for those who are his own. Lord God, I just pray that you, by the revelation of your spirit, would give us a deeper understanding of your love and just its mysteries and its depths. Just show us, Father, especially for those who are in misery or need right now, just the greatness of that love and just how sure, everlasting, and steadfast it is. Lord, I pray um, that you would just as we go into 2021, I just pray that it would be a year of even greater revelation of who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Libby. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to finish chapter 1. So last week we left off in 56. So we'll pick up in verse 57 and go through verse 80. And the last sort of um, account that Luke gives in Luke chapter 1 is of the birth of John the Baptist. And what we're going to see specifically there is something about Zechariah. Now it's the account of John's birth, but really the story focuses in on Zechariah just like it did earlier. And so we're going to see Zechariah really like savor what's happening in this whole experience. And as I was kind of thinking about that and the, this idea of savoring, really when we think about that word, we think about food. That's kind of the most uh, natural association we have for someone savoring something. And it made me think about the dynamic 
with my wife when it comes to us eating meals. I'm like eat now, taste later. Like food is fuel. By the time I get to the point where it's time to eat it, I'm just going to like shovel it in. And sometime after the meal, I'll kind of think back and be like, oh, yeah, I guess it was pretty good. Um, I don't really taste it in the moment. My wife, on the other hand, is the total opposite. She wants to taste like every spice and every little bit of flavor and every bite of all the different stuff that's on her plate. And so we sit down to eat, and I sit down, and it's gone in a couple of minutes. Melody gets her plate, and it's like one bite at a time. It's like she's thinking about it. She swallows that one. Next bite of the same exact thing. It's like she's thinking about it. She wants to savor it. She wants to really, really enjoy it. And I would say that Melody and I are like that pretty much in all of life, like all of my different seasons of life. When I was in high school, it was like, let's just smash through high school, and then I'll go to college. And when I got to college, it was kind of like, huh, yeah, I guess high school was kind of fun. Smash through college and get a job, and then I kind of think back about college and like, uh, yeah, I guess that was kind of fun. And then I'm always like, get through, like move through it, go as fast as I can, get done, and then kind of think back and reflect. But there's one thing my wife has taught me that the Lord has used my wife to show me. It's that there's something better available. Like you can actually savor stuff in the moment and not just like hammer through it and then think back on it. We do this in a lot of aspects of life. I think typically we do it maybe most notably in moments of like affliction. Something's hard. We just want to get through to the other side, so we kind of hunker down, and we're just trying to like muscle our way through the affliction and the difficulty, and then we get on the other side, and we're willing to look back and say, like, oh, I guess I can see God in that. I think there's something better available. We do it in moments of celebration, even, because what happens in moments of like joy and triumph and celebration is that, for some reason... Uh, our flesh can so easily delude us into thinking that in the moment of joy and celebration, we are the cause of whatever it is that we're celebrating. And so we're mostly self-focused in those moments. Then we get on the other side and maybe we're willing to think back on like how it is that God brought us to that moment or his goodness and his faithfulness in that. But in the moment of celebration, I think there's something better available. I think we can savor better. Even in our sanctification, and like most people that are walking with Jesus and have been for any amount of time, like, I, I genuinely think we all have a desire to look like Christ in our lives. And we want that, but sanctification is hard and it hurts. And oftentimes it feels like a sculptor has got a chisel up to us and is just like hammering away at the rough edges and it's painful. And so we just want to come out the other side and look like Jesus and then look backward and think like, oh, look at what God has done. And that's, there, there's nothing wrong with that. But even in painful sanctification, I think there's something better. Like, we can learn to savor God and his goodness and his faithfulness and his mercy and his love to us, even in those moments. And what we're going to see this morning is a picture of Zechariah doing just that. And so the end point is this, that sanctification in all of its forms teaches us to savor the Savior. And in order to land there, we're going to have to do quite a bit of table setting uh, and make sure we get everything kind of in the passage and in Luke 1 up to this point in the right place so then we can look at what's there before us and apply it to ourselves and even to our current circumstances here in the world right now. And so that's where we're headed. And so as the means of starting to kind of set the table here, let me just recap Zechariah and Elizabeth a little bit because they're going to fade from the picture and no longer be a part of the story after this. 
Luke has been uh, telling us about Jesus. That's the whole point of Luke's gospel. And he uses chapter 1 to tell us about the days leading up to Jesus' birth. And woven into that story is the story of the birth of John the Baptist and of John the Baptist's parents. And so you get Elizabeth and Zechariah in kind of three, like, window panels, if you will. You get Zechariah in the temple being told by Gabriel about the coming of his son. Then you get Mary and Elizabeth coming together, celebrating the fact that they've both miraculously conceived a child. And then at the end of chapter one, you get the birth of John the Baptist and you get Zechariah and Elizabeth's responses. It's parallel to what you get about Jesus. You get an angel, Gabriel, telling Mary about the coming of her son, Jesus. Then you get Mary and Elizabeth celebrating the fact that they've both miraculously conceived. And then at the start of chapter two, you get the birth of Jesus. And it's all woven together, but it's all the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a story about Jesus, not necessarily about John the Baptist. But there's something instructive here that we see, and that's why Luke gives it to us. If, you will ju- if you've got Luke chapter one open here, Jump back to the beginning, because there's a thread that weaves its way through all of Luke chapter 1, and that thread is about God's mercy. It shows up over and over and over again. The word itself, which the Greek word is elios, shows up multiple times, but the theme, the idea, shows up repeatedly. And so the first time we see it is in verse 12. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah because your prayer has been heard. That's the first kind of rumbling of this theme of mercy. When we talk about mercy, if you were to look it up in the dictionary and just get kind of the normal sort of layman's use of the word definition, you would see something that talks about like compassion toward an opponent or compassion toward your enemy. You might see something that says like not getting what you justly deserve. The best way to illustrate that is uh, when I was a child, my elementary school principal lived up the street and around the corner from us. And one day over the summer, my sister and I got out like our super soaker water guns and we were having a, you know, like a water fight in the driveway. Well, at some point we decided we would pump up the super soakers as much as we could and then we would spray the cars that were driving up the street. Well, at one point, my principal rounds the corner. He's got his window down. I didn't know that. I'm standing there at the edge of my driveway, you know, and I unload the super soaker and it goes into his car and it soaks my principal. What I deserved would have been for him to hit the brakes, walk out. He was a very kind and gentle guy, so he definitely would not have yelled at me, but he would have drawn attention to the fact that he was now wet and my water gun was the cause. He didn't do that. I also maybe deserved that like the next time I saw him in some other setting with my parents, he made sure that my parents knew what had happened. He didn't do either of those. He never brought it up ever again. I ran inside. I told my mom, mom, we just sprayed Dr. Peach with our super soakers. She made me go and apologize to him. And when I went and apologized, it was like nothing had happened. That's mercy. I didn't get what I justly deserved. When we talk biblically about the idea of mercy, we're talking in a theological sense, which means God has to be involved. And so when we talk biblically about the idea of mercy, we're talking about the goodness of God toward those in misery. That's kind of the like, theological, biblical definition when we talk about mercy. The best picture of that, Adam and Eve sin in the garden by eating the tree from the knowledge of good, eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had told them, if you do this, you will surely die. So Eve takes a bite. What should have happened? Dead. 
Adam, next, takes a bite. What should have happened? Dead. They keep breathing. And they walk out of the garden. That is mercy. That is the goodness of God to a person in misery. But it's not just that they didn't get what they justly deserved. God's good to them, makes clothing for them. Sends them out of the garden and has a plan for them. Has a plan to redeem them. So it's not just not getting what you justly deserve. It's that despite what you justly deserve, God is good to you in your misery. That is God's mercy. Look back at Zechariah. An angel shows up, Gabriel, reflecting the holiness of God. Zechariah is terrified. Why? Because he's sinful. He's standing in the presence, the reflection of God's perfect, spotless righteousness. And honestly, he should probably die. What does the angel say? Do not be afraid. You're not going to get what you deserve. And we've heard your, God has heard your prayer. And he's answered it. That's mercy. God's goodness. Look down to verse 28. Mary has the same experience. An angel came to her, that's Gabriel, and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. That is God's goodness, his mercy toward them. And then when both individuals get the chance to speak for the very first time, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. She finds out that everything that Gabriel said to her was true. What does she do? She opens her mouth to sing. Look at verse 50. His mercy is from generation to generation. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy. We'll read the passage in just a second, but Zechariah, when he has the opportunity to speak, opens his mouth to sing. Verse 72, he has dealt mercifully with our fathers. Verse 78, because of God's merciful compassion. Elizabeth has her baby. That's back in verses 57 and 58. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy. All over Luke chapter one. Why? Luke's trying to display something. God is doing something unthinkably merciful in the coming of this child, Jesus. And we look at it from this side of the cross and we put all of its meaning into the very beginning of the story, all of Jesus' sinless life, his merciful death on the cross, whereby he receives the just punishment for our sins so that we might, by God's grace and faith in him, be cleansed of our sin and made righteous before God. We put all of that mercy into the very beginning of the story. Mary, Zechariah, see none of that. And yet they're rejoicing in the goodness of God in just the birth of this child. It's this story of mercy. It's just weaving its way through. Hold that in your mind. We're going to come back to it. Luke doesn't want us to miss it, so we'll just kind of grab hold of that, and we'll come back. Remember the, the landing point here. Sanctification in all of its forms teaches us to savor the Savior. So if you've got your Bible open there, read along with me. I'm going to start in Luke 1, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. It says this. Now the time had come... For Elizabeth to give birth. And she had a son. And then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, No, he will be called John. 
Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart saying, when or what will, what then will become of this child? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us, to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became spiritually strong. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth of your mercy this morning? God, would you show us your love and your goodness? God, would you teach us what it is to savor those? Help us to see the truth of your word. Would your Holy Spirit come and press these words into our hearts that we might be a people who learn in all circumstances of life to savor deeply the goodness and mercy and love that you have shown to us in the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let's just walk through the story. Make sure we kind of understand the details. It's been nine months. Elizabeth has her child. She has a son. And everybody from kind of the neighboring area comes to celebrate with her. Why? Because this was a woman who wanted a child for a long time, was beyond the age where she should have been able to conceive, and God has dealt mercifully to her. So they're celebrating the birth of John, absolutely, but they're also celebrating the work of God in the moment. And it's like an immediate partial fulfillment of what Gabriel said back in the temple to Zechariah when Gabriel showed up. And in verse 114, chapter 1, verse 14, he said, There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, there's going to be more rejoicing that comes as a result of John the Baptist's birth and subsequently Jesus' birth, and the rest of the Gospel of Luke is going to explain that. But right here in the moment, There's like immediate fulfillment. Gabriel said there would be rejoicing. What happens when she gives birth? Her neighbors and relatives show up to rejoice alongside her. This is like sermon within a sermon. So if you let me make an aside here. Luke wants us to see throughout his gospel. It's why he pulls prophecy from the Old Testament. It's why numerous times within his own account, something is said early on that gets fulfilled later. He's intentional about drawing those things out. He wants us to understand that what God said is true and will come true. What God says is true. Who God says he is, he is. Who God says we are, we are. What God says about who Jesus is, that's who Jesus is. What God says about what's best for us as his creation, that's the case. What God says is true, and what God says will come true. So when Gabriel arrives at the temple and talks to Zechariah and says, you're going to give birth to a son, you're going to name him John, people are going to rejoice. And now, Zechariah, you're not going to speak for nine months. All of it comes true. 
Now, Gabriel is the one who spoke it because God sent him as his messenger. So God's words through the angel Gabriel and what God says is true and will come true and all of it comes true right here in the early part of Luke. He's intentional about drawing that out for us. I say all of that to say this. The same is true today. So you open up God's word, the Bible, and what God says is true. Now, you might be reading it through a messenger, right? Luke is the author of this gospel. If you were reading early in the Old Testament, it would be Moses was the author. If you read other places in the New Testament, it would be Paul is the author. They're the messenger. God is speaking, and what he says is true and will come true. You can bank on it. God has spoken. It's such a wondrous gift. And so sometimes we'll nonchalantly or kind of flippantly say, like, I just don't feel God speaking to me. Open up your Bible. Like, there it is. He speaks. He spoke at one time. It's all there for you, and he's still speaking through it today. You want to hear God speak? Open up your Bible. And when you read there, what God says is true, and it will come true. All of it. I don't know, jot something down about that. That's like bonus material. Verse 8 or not verse eight, eight days after the birth of John in verse 59, they go to circumcise John. That's according to Jewish custom. It's just kind of what everybody did. And when they get there, all the relatives and the neighbors feel like they've got naming rights over this child. And so they say, obviously, you're going to name him Zechariah Jr. And mom says, no, we're going to name him John. And they don't take mom's word for it. They look over at dad. Dad, what do you want to name? Clearly, you want to name him Zechariah Jr. He grabs a tablet. Right? So obviously, they've established some communication strategies here over nine months of Zechariah not being able to talk. And so he grabs a tablet that's nearby, not like an iPad kind of tablet, but like a, some sort of other tablet. And he scribbles down, literally, the order of the words is, John is his name. As if to say, we've been calling him John for nine months now because that's the name of this baby and you're not changing it. John is his name. And as soon as he says that, We're told in verse 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. You kind of wonder to yourself, well, what might he have said when he started praising God? No need to wonder. Luke tells you, verse 68, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He starts to speak and he pours out this song. What we traditionally call the song that Mary sings is the Magnificat. That's because in Latin, that's the first word there. In Latin, the first word here is Benedictus. So that's what we typically call uh, Zechariah's song, the Benedictus. And he unloads this unbelievable praise. And if you just kind of look at it, of the 12 verses that are there, 10 of them are about Jesus. Two of them are about his son, John. So verses 76 and 77, it's like in the middle of this praise about Jesus, Zechariah looks at the child in his arms and he says, but you, child, you will be a prophet. You will go before the Lord, which is an amazing statement because it's not like some ethereal, like 30,000 foot view sort of thing where he'll like go before the Lord in the sense that he'll like live his life and God sees everything, so therefore it's before the Lord. No, remember, Zechariah was likely present in the house when Elizabeth and Mary had their little interaction. And Elizabeth said, what kind of kindness is this to me that the mother of my Lord would come? That's about Jesus. And so Zechariah, 
A few months later, when his child is born, says, you, child, will be a prophet of the Most High God, and you will go before the Lord, before that baby in Mary's womb. You will go before him and prepare the way. Preparing people for salvation through the forgiveness of sins. That's who this child is going to be. And that's all you get about John, because you get 10 verses about Jesus. What does he say about Jesus? Blessed is the Lord the God of Israel, because he has visited, provided redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, salvation from our enemies. He's dealt mercifully with us, remembered his holy covenant. He's given us the privilege, since we have been rescued, to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. Zechariah starts to sing a song that sounds like the kind of song we would sing knowing the end of Jesus' life. He mentions salvation three different times. He talks about redemption, rescue, forgiveness, and peace. Jesus has done none of that. Jesus hasn't even taken his first breath yet. And, notice, Zechariah sings all of it past tense, at least the first half. He has visited us, has provided redemption, has raised up a horn of salvation, has rescued us from the hands of those who hate us, has given us the privilege of serving him without fear. Past tense, why? Well, because what God says is true and will come true. So when Gabriel, through uh, our God, through Gabriel, said this is who this child is going to be, it was as good as done. And Zechariah understands that. It's, it's over. This is what's happening. We've been visited. We've been rescued. We've got salvation. We've been redeemed. And yet... It's still to come. Look down at verse 78. This, this part's all of a sudden in the future. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us, will shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death, will guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah opens his mouth to speak for the first time in nine months, and what tumbles out is a song of praise to the Lord about the coming of Jesus and all that Jesus will accomplish. What does Zechariah know at this point? Well, he knows only what Gabriel has told him, that he's going to have a son, his name is going to be John, he'll be the forerunner to the Messiah, and he's not going to speak until that baby is born, and now he can speak and just pours out this unbelievable song of praise about the glorious, sin-forgiving, redemption-bringing, salvation-securing, rescue-providing, peace-granting beauty that is the mercy of God in the coming of Jesus. It's unbelievable. Zechariah knows that this whole thing is about Jesus. Mary knew, and we saw her song, that this whole thing was about Jesus. And then at the end of the whole deal... If you jump back to verse 66 or 65, look what happens to the people that hear this. Fear came on all those who lived around them. And all these things are being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea, right? They're passing it around, word of mouth. Did you hear about Zechariah and Elizabeth's son? More importantly, what do you think is going to become of him? Because whatever becomes of him must mean, and if all that's true, it must mean that all this other stuff is true too and they're passing it around and it says that they're taking it to heart, which is the same verbiage that they use about Mary after Jesus is born when she treasures up everything in her heart. That's what everybody's doing. 
They're storing it up. They're savoring it because if what John just said about, or what Zechariah just said about John is true, that he's going to be a prophet of the Most High and go before the Lord and prepare the way, then salvation is coming. Rescue, redemption, peace. And then you just kind of get like the after statement in verse 80 that, well, he grew up, he became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until it was time to appear. And the question that it leaves you with is how in the world does Zechariah know that? How is it possible for him to know about all that it is that Jesus is going to accomplish? The salvation, the redemption, the rescue, the peace. How can he possibly know that? And I think the answer is, he knows it because he had nine months of God-induced silence to treasure what God's mercy was doing in the coming of the Savior. Why do I think that? If you look at, if you were to like really take verses 68 to 79 and like piece them all out and work with all the phrases and, and whatnot. It's just littered with Old Testament references. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He's got unbelievable working knowledge of the Old Testament and all the sacrifices and those kinds of things, but he also has an extensive education in the Old Testament as a whole. And so when he starts to sing, what bubbles out of him is everything the Old Testament has said about who this Messiah would be. He's just stored it all up over nine months. And when he gets the chance to speak, he sings a song about who this child is going to be. I want to take this and like try to rightly apply it for us here. And in order to do that, I'm going to make kind of like a logical series of statements that are going to land us at our ending point, which is that sanctification in all of its forms teaches us how to savor Jesus. But in order to get there, like I need to put some bricks in kind of one by one. And the first one is this, and it's that all of life's moments are opportunities for sanctification, all of them. Now worry, when you see the word all, you might think, I mean like the grand scope of life. Like if you took your life and you put it on a timeline, the whole thing was an opportunity to be sanctified into the image of Jesus. Okay, true. From the moment you got saved to the moment you go to glory, that period we would call a period of sanctification before your glorification. So you were justified here, you were sanctified all the way through here, and you are glorified here at the end. That's true. But I literally mean all of the moments. And I don't just mean all of like the religious moments. Not just all the moments where you sat in church and sang songs or listened to a sermon. Not just all the moments where you popped something onto a podcast and listened to it while you work out. Not just all the moments you opened up your Bible and did a quiet time. Not just all the moments you sat down and prayed. I mean like all the moments. When you put your socks on this morning, there's an opportunity to be sanctified. You went to work last week. And you disagreed with your spouse or your children. There's an opportunity to be sanctified. Look at it in Zechariah really quickly. He gets afflicted. And his affliction becomes an opportunity for sanctification. And sanctification is an opportunity to savor Jesus. And what does he do for nine months? He treasures up the mercy of God in the coming of this child, Jesus. Imagine what it would be like to be silent for nine months. The beginning would be brutal, 
right? He's at the temple. He has this amazing day where he gets to go in and light the incense, and he's in there, and all of a sudden he can't speak because he's had this interaction with Gabriel, and he walks out, and he's trying to do charades for, like, what just happened in there. And he wakes up the next morning, and he's still serving his week at the temple alongside his division. I'm sure he thought to himself, when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to be able to talk. I'm going to tell him all about what happened in there. And he woke up, and he goes to try to speak, and he can't. He gets home, and he wants to tell Elizabeth all about it, and he thinks, once I get home and, like, away from the temple, then he gets home, and he can't talk. And he thinks, tomorrow morning, he can't talk. And at some point, like, the resignation sets in. Like, you're just so frustrated. You're like, ugh. I guess this is what it is. But somewhere along the line, who knows where in the nine-month period, he turned a corner and he started to savor what it is that God was doing and he's drawing on all of this knowledge he has of the Old Testament and everything that, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament has to say about who the Messiah would be and he's just letting it stir in his heart and he's treasuring it. He gets sanctified in there. So much so that when he has the ability to speak, the first thing he talks about is God's mercy, God's love, God's goodness. He speaks the truth about who Jesus is before Jesus is any of those things. Zechariah allowed his affliction to be an opportunity for sanctification. And what does sanctification in all of its forms do? It teaches us to savor the Savior. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Luke says it this way, Let us take heed that affliction does us good as it did to Zechariah. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. But it's not just affliction that happens over the course of this nine months, because right here there's this huge celebration when John is born. There's like this unbelievable opportunity to celebrate what it is that God has done. And so Zechariah is there as his wife gives birth, and everybody is there rejoicing, and they're rejoicing in John. And then Zechariah gets the chance to speak, and who's he rejoicing in? Jesus. The celebration is an opportunity to celebrate Jesus, to be sanctified, to learn to savor Christ more deeply. He doesn't turn it into something about himself. He doesn't even turn it into something about this miracle child. He turns it into something about Christ. The affliction was sanctifying, and so was the celebration. And all of our moments of sanctification are opportunities to savor, and that's exactly what Zechariah does. And this is true in all of our moments, all of our seasons, all of our circumstances. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth and their need, their like lack and want for a child. And our need is a chance to be sanctified. If you've been reading along in our Advent devotional, The Dawning of Indestructible Joy by John Piper, just a couple of days ago, there was one about the Magi and they show up with their gifts at the uh, birthplace of Jesus and they offer these gifts. And John Piper talked about how out of their wealth, there's a chance to be sanctified. And to say like, this, I, this wealth is not about me. I'll willingly and joyfully give it to the Savior. The extraordinary moments in our lives are opportunities for sanctification. The miracles that God does in and around us all the time. And if the extraordinary are opportunities to be sanctified, so are the mundane, like the daily acts of raising kids or doing chores or just paying your bills. The other day, my wife and I just moved and I went to do like the first bill cycle payment on all the stuff that, you know, we have to pay every week and the address wasn't right on half of them. And I'm like on the phone and 
I'm super frustrated about it. And my wife, with like the kindest little smirk that only wives know how to give, looks at me and she says, this is a great opportunity to learn some patience. I wanted to throw the phone. (laughs) But it was absolutely an opportunity to be sanctified. She's 100% right. It's just the the mundane act of paying bills. Here was the grace of God, his goodness and his mercy saying, look, you miserable human. Here's a chance to be sanctified and to learn to savor Jesus. Our singleness is an opportunity for sanctification. Our marriage is an opportunity for sanctification. The conflicts and the strife that we experience are opportunities for sanctification. Our friendships are opportunities for sanctification. Our careers and jobs are opportunities for sanctification. So too is our retirement an opportunity for sanctification. The societal circumstances that exist all around us are opportunities for sanctification. And the kind of global world events that take place are opportunities for sanctification. And what do all of our moments of sanctification provide for us? The opportunity to savor Jesus. How so? What's happening when you're being sanctified is that God is providing you the opportunity to have your heart detached from savoring this lesser thing so that you can savor the great thing. Jesus. What I really want in the moment of paying the bills when I'm frustrated is not patience. What I really want is for this to go quick and smoothly and fast and just to be done so I can move on with my life and do something more exciting. And my heart like leaps at the idea of efficiency and quickness. And there's God, ever loving, you miserable human. Learn. Learn how to savor something better than just the quickness of paying your bills. We get that opportunity in all of our sanctification, whatever it might be, that instead of clinging to this and savoring this lesser thing that's going to disappoint you at some point, you can savor Jesus. And so sanctification becomes both an invitation to and a result of savoring the Savior. They feed one another. The more we're sanctified, the more we learn to savor Jesus. And the more we learn to savor Jesus, the more we embrace the act of being sanctified. I mean, imagine nine months of silence here. At some point, he turns the corner and he starts really treasuring what God is doing and he's reflecting on God's word. And at some point, he woke up one morning and he thought, you know what, it's not so bad to be silent today. I think I'll savor the goodness of God a little more. And it had shifted because in the sanctifying experience of affliction, he learned to savor Jesus. And now all of a sudden, the savoring of Jesus makes him not so upset about the sanctifying experience because look at how good the beauty of Jesus is. And so then, the kind of at the bottom of all of this, the degree to which we savor Jesus is tied to the degree to which we understand his goodness, his mercy, and his love. That's what Luke is showing us all through chapter one. Look at God's mercy, his goodness to those in misery. And as Mary sees that, she can't help but sing about Jesus. And as Zechariah sees that, he can't help but sing about Jesus. And so at the very core, the question becomes, do you understand the mercy of God and the work that he has done to save you from your sin? That's step one. If you've never done that, you can do that today. 
and see the reality of your own misery. And that God in His goodness sent His Son to receive the punishment that you deserve so that by His grace you can be washed clean of your sin. You could do that today. Have a conversation after this service is over with someone you know that's a follower of Jesus or you could call the office and we'd love to talk to you tomorrow. There's nothing more I'd love to do than talk to you about the mercy of God and the person of Jesus. But then the ongoing question becomes one of seeing the goodness, mercy, and love of God in the rest of what he does. All of our days, all of our seasons, in the affliction, in the celebration, in the need, in the wealth, in the extraordinary, in the mundane, in the singleness, or the marriage, or the friendship, in the conflict, in the strife, in the career, or the retirement, in the societal circumstances, or the world events, because all of those moments are opportunities to be sanctified, and all of our sanctification teaches us to savor Jesus. Let me kind of like land this for today. We made a decision as a staff, you know, a couple of months ago that we wanted to do some formal Advent um, things, both within our services and as a church. So we were going to take time to, you know, light the candles and spend a chunk of our service reflecting on the coming of Jesus. And we used some resources to buy the little devotional so the people in our church could have that book and we could read it daily. Why? Why do we do that this year of all years? 2020 has really been like something. And as the world, and really particularly America, has struggled to like react to all that's happened, whether it be with the pandemic and everything that that feels like is taken from us, or if it has to do with other sort of cultural societal events that have created a lot of turmoil, or an election that was incredibly contentious, both beforehand and then afterward. And you're kind of looking out over the landscape of America, and the response of the church doesn't look much different than the response of the rest of the world. And I I lump myself in there. It's like we've all just thrown our hands up into the air and said, I can't handle the frustration of all of this, and I'm over it. And imagine how confusing that must be to someone who's not a believer because the average person in America understands enough of Christianity to understand that we're supposed to have a hope, a joy, a peace. We're supposed to know a love that's available to us that would cause us to respond differently to the things that happen in life than someone who doesn't know those things. And so they're watching the church throw their hands up in resignation or throw their hands up in frustration. And they're saying, where's the peace y'all talk about? Where's the joy that's supposed to be available? Where's this hope that you're supposedly holding out? Don't you have this guy, Jesus, who's supposed to kind of change the trajectory of things for you a little bit? And we're all looking around like, I don't know. And so we said, let's take a step back during Advent and use intentional time, daily as families or individuals, weekly as a church, to just say, God, Show us your goodness and your mercy and your love. And the primary place we see that is in the birth of Jesus. And so, God, would you show us that? Would you remind us of your goodness? Would you remind us of your mercy? Would you remind us of your love? Would you remind us of the joy that's available thanks to the coming of Jesus, of the hope that's available because of who you are? Would you remind us of the peace that's available because of what you've done for us in Jesus? And as we do that, would you remind our hearts that those things are available all the time? And that as we get sanctified by all that happens in life, we're learning to savor Jesus. 
And so in the month leading up to Christmas, would you teach us to savor Jesus? And would the carryover effect of that be that on December 28th, January 14th, September 9th, we're savoring Jesus. And what we're savoring in our sanctification is the fact that God, in all of his goodness, looked on us in our misery and he acted mercifully. And when we go to speak, would what tumbles out of our mouth be a song about the goodness of God? Like Zechariah, who spends nine months savoring what God is doing in this child Jesus, and when he gets the chance to talk, it just spills out a song about the glory of the goodness of God. And so would we be a people who sing like the words of the song we're going to sing right now? All my life you have been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. With every breath that I have able, I will sing of the goodness of God. The opening words to this song are, I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. All my days, I'm held in your hand. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head down, I will sing of the goodness of God. All of life's available for sanctification, which means all of life is available to savor Jesus, which means all my days I will sing of the goodness of God. Amen? Amen. Let's sing that song together.